Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 115, That is a Statue, Not God. So, the line of Heraclius has been extinguished with the second deposition of Justinian II. The next three emperors don't deserve much of our attention, so they won't get much. Philippikos Bardanes was more interested in having fun and meddling in the church than ruling an empire, and he was disposed having ruled for just 18 months. He had tried to summon an army from the Opsikion theme to fight the Bulgars, but they rebelled and put on the throne a civil servant who took the name Anastasius II. Anastasius was a lot better than Bardanes and could have been a very good leader. He improved discipline in the army, improved the food supply and strengthened the Theodosian walls. He had some success negotiating with the Arabs, but in 715 he saw his chance to attack them. He appointed Leo the Isaurian to lead an expedition in Asia Minor and launched another offensive from the island of Rhodes. Unfortunately, the Opsikian troops rebelled against the commander of the force and clubbed him to death. On the way back, they picked up a tax collector called Theodosius and proclaimed him Theodosius III. Theodosius didn't want to be an emperor and tried to run away but he was forced at sword point to accept the purple. After a six-month siege of Constantinople, Anastasius was deposed and sent to a monastery in Thessalonica. He'd reigned for two years. Meanwhile, Leo the Isaurian had successfully persuaded the Arabs to withdraw from imperial territory, and this success made him wildly popular. Even the Arabs were impressed. It was clear, though, that this man was meant to be emperor. He had previously obtained the support of Artabastus, the governor of the Armeniacon theme, and soon began negotiations with the Patriarch and the Senate. As we've seen, Leo was a good talker and achieved a lot without having to fight. And here, he did it again. He marched to Constantinople with Artabastus. Theodosius was persuaded to give up the throne, this not being a difficult task, as, as we know, he never wanted to be emperor in the first place. After being promised that he and his son would not be harmed, he was gratefully packed off to a monastery at Ephesus. He'd reigned for 22 months. Just like in chapter 103, as you can see, here we have some very unimportant emperors, because, just like the last Western emperors, nobody bothered to kill them. Philippikos Bardanes died in 714, Anastasius II was killed in a rebellion against Leo in 718, and there's no record of where or when Theodosius III died we have no idea how old any of them were. The empire had lost a lot of territory during the reigns of Justinian and the five usurpers and was in a bad way. Leo III entered Constantinople by the Golden Gate and was crowned Basileus on the 25th of March 717. Within six months, Prince Maslama, leader of an Arab people called the Saracens, was marching on Constantinople. Before long, 80,000 men were camped beneath the walls of the city. Less than two weeks later, his colleague Suleiman sailed a fleet of 1,800 warships into the Sea of Marmara and Constantinople was under siege again. So now we should find out, whose side is this Leo the Isaurian really on? He speaks Arabic and he seems to be able to get the Arabs to do what he wants. The Saracens have cheered for him and now their army and navy are under the walls of the capital, ready to take it. It was soon very clear. Leo was no traitor. In fact, he was probably the best emperor the empire had seen since Heraclius, and he was ready for the Saracenian provinces, and his original name was Conom. It's a shame he wasn't a barbarian. That would have made this chapter ripe for Arnie jokes. The second siege of Constantinople was just like the one which Constantine IV had to deal with exactly 40 years before. 
This time, though, the Arab fleet and army did not leave when the cold weather came. They stayed and tried to press home their advantage. They stayed all through the winter. And what a winter it was. It was the worst winter on the Bosphorus for many, many years. The harsh snows and bitter cruel winds must have shocked the besieging Arabs. They were from the baking deserts of Arabia and were not used to terrible cold. The winter took its toll on the Arab army and soon the food began to run out. The troops ended up having to eat their horses, donkeys and camels. When they'd run out of animals, they started eating dead Arabs. On the sea, the Arab fleet was being set ablaze by Greek fire. There was no answer to this deadly weapon and the fleet got smaller and smaller. The citizens of Constantinople were horrified to see another massive fleet arriving in the spring, but the rowers were all Christians and as soon as they came within sight of the Christian city, they all changed sides. In the end, it was a Bulgarian army that finished off the siege. The Bulgars were not particularly fond of the empire, but they were even less fond of the Saracens. A whole army of Bulgars marched down from Bulgar lands and set upon the starving Arabs. It's said that 22,000 Arab warriors were killed. In August, Maslama had had enough, and he dragged his shattered army back to Syria. The navy tried to sail home too, but were caught in one of the horrendous summer storms which sometimes swell in the eastern Mediterranean. Only five ships made it back to their home port. So now we do know whose side Leo the Isaurian was on. Yes, he spoke Arabic, and he seemed to be able to get the Arabs to do what he wanted. Yes, the Saracens cheered for him. Yes, the Arab army and navy appeared under the walls of the capital ready to take it. But they had been completely defeated. There is some evidence that Leo had the whole thing planned in advance. It's certain that he'd been in communication with the Bulgars, and it's perfectly possible that he talked the Saracens into besieging Constantinople and the Bulgars into coming down and defeating them. The way he managed to weaken two enemies without even having to fight was truly remarkable. Maybe he even arranged the desertion of the Christian rowers. If he really planned it all, then he must go down as one of the cleverest emperors that the empire had seen. However it happened, the outcome was clear the Arabs would not threaten the empire seriously for the rest of Leo's reign. Not bad for a peasant farmer from Syria. Leo III's reign, though, is not remembered for his amazing defeat of the Saracens. Leo the Isaurian is remembered for causing the next massive argument among the Christians. But for now, Leo III was a true hero. Somehow he had managed to persuade the Saracen Arabs and Bulgars to fight each other and had saved the empire from complete destruction. It must be remembered, though, that the empire was much smaller than it had been a few years before. On accession, Leo inherited an empire that consisted of Asia Minor, Corsica, Sardinia, Sicily and a few bits of Italy and southern Greece. Even though he had saved it from being overrun by its enemies, he hadn't regained any of the territory lost under Justinian II and the five usurpers. Given the invasions and the lost territory, it seemed quite clear to Leo that God was not happy with the empire and it was God who was punishing it by sending enemy after enemy to wipe it from existence. In 726, a huge volcano erupted from beneath the Aegean Sea, spewing boiling lava and rocks as big as hills into the sky. This was final proof to the emperor that God was indeed mightily ticked off. Leo reasoned that God was unhappy for one main reason. Icons. As we've heard, an icon is a picture or a statue representing God, Jesus or another holy figure. In the empire of the 7th and early 8th centuries, icons had got a bit out of hand. People had started worshipping them, and sometimes they even stood in for godparents at baptisms. 
Leo III stood up in the pulpit of the Hagia Sophia and gave one of the most shocking sermons ever. He declared that icons were to blame for the state of the empire. The Muslims did not allow icons and the Muslims had blasted out of Arabia and taken more than half of the empire. Clearly God was on the side of the Muslims. God was not on the side of the Christians and God should be taken seriously. Nobody really raised any objection to the sermon, but the people were about to be shocked even more. Above the main gate to the great palace stood the largest icon in Constantinople. It was a giant gold statue of Jesus. The statue faced the Hagia Sophia and was visible from much of the centre of the city. Leo ordered it to be pulled down and sent a detachment of soldiers to do the deed. The people were not pleased and the officer in charge of the destruction was caught by a mob and killed. In parts of the empire there was mutiny. The people loved their icons and were not going to stand by while some Syrian peasant, despite being a good and victorious emperor, had them all taken down and smashed. In 730, Leo issued his decree against icons. All holy statues, pictures and images of any sort were to be destroyed. The Pope in Rome objected by sending a letter to the Emperor and the Christians in the East, who were under Muslim control anyway, completely ignored the edict. Leo was not pleased the Pope was disagreeing with him and sent some men to arrest him, but the ships carrying the men sank and pretty soon the Pope died anyway. His successor though took the same view. Leo was isolated, but he didn't care. The empire was mostly supportive. He had, after all, saved it from destruction. On the face of it, it was hard to disagree with Leo that God had been unhappy with icons. For the rest of his reign, he kept the empire safe. There were no more successful attacks from the Arabs or the European enemies. In 740, another massive Muslim army was smashed by the imperial forces. The empire may have been a lot smaller, but it was at last secure against attack. Leo III died of dropsy in 741. He was the first emperor to die peacefully in his bed since Constantine IV over half a century before. He was 56 years old and had ruled the empire pretty successfully for 24 years. In 718, Leo's wife Maria had given birth to their first son, who was called Constantine. It is said that when the little boy was baptised, he had a poo in the font. This led to him being given the unfortunate nickname Constantine Capronymus, which literally means Constantine, name of dung. There is little likelihood that the plop in the font story is true. It's more likely that it was a tale spread by Constantine's enemies. However, the nickname stuck, and poor Constantine had to live with it throughout his life. In 741, he was crowned by the Patriarch as Constantine V. Now, we may think that Leo III was a pretty keen iconoclast, a destroyer of icons, but his son was a complete fanatic. He was determined to rid the empire of icons once and for all, and he set about making it clear from the moment he first wore the purple. There was one man, though, who was prepared to take a stand and challenge the young emperor. Leo's old mate, Artabastus, who'd married Leo's daughter, Constantine V's sister, launched a shock bid for the throne while the young man was campaigning in the east. He took Constantinople and had himself crowned emperor. He immediately cancelled all of the iconoclast edicts. It was amazing how many icons, which were supposed to have been destroyed, suddenly appeared from where they'd been hidden. Constantine, though, was an intelligent and courageous young man, and he wasn't beaten. He took refuge in the town of Emorium. The imperial garrison in the town had been hugely fond of his father, and were all iconoclasts. They eagerly declared their support for the true ruler of the empire. 
the young emperor marched on Constantinople, picking up more and more supporters on the way. His army defeated Artabastus in a small battle, and Constantine V entered the capital in triumph. Artabastus and his two sons were blinded in the Hippodrome, and all of their supporters were executed. The patriarch Anastasius, who had crowned Artabastus, was flogged and then made to parade round the Hippodrome, naked, sitting backwards on a donkey. Rather surprisingly after this, he was given his job back. Artabastus died in 743 soon after the blinding. He was over 50 years old and had been emperor of part of the empire for just over two years. Constantine V was now free to do what he liked with the icons, and he did exactly what he liked. He was, as we have said, a complete fanatic, and he set about iconoclasm with enthusiasm. He had all the mosaics of Jesus and Mary and the other saints in the palace taken down and replaced with beautiful landscape mosaics. There were also pictures of horse races and other games. The emperor was convinced, though, that he had to stamp out opposition to iconoclasm quickly and forever, and he decided his father's decree was just not enough. Constantine V called a new ecumenical council to debate the issues, but of course he wasn't interested in any disagreement, so he filled the council with bishops who agreed with him. Not surprisingly, the council ruled in favour of iconoclasm, and icons were officially banned. Constantine then went about enforcing the new rule with passion. He was so much against icons that he wouldn't even let anyone use the word saint or say that Mary was the mother of God. If he heard any of these things, he was sent into a fit of rage. The emperor was particularly fierce in taking on the monks. In the monasteries there had been many icons, and Constantine used all the methods he could to get them to do as they were told. He so hated monks that if they didn't do as they were told, he sometimes had their beards smeared with oil, after which they were set on fire. The Patriarch of Constantinople, quite understandably, objected to the treatment of the monks. The Emperor had the poor Patriarch whipped and thrown into prison, and then he paraded him round the Hippodrome on a sick donkey. Constantine Capronimus seemed to like parading people round the Hippodrome on donkeys. The Emperor forced quite a few monks and nuns to leave the monasteries and get married. He also confiscated their property and used it to fill the treasury. Constantine V always referred to the monasteries and the monks as the unmentionables. Now, of course, all this iconoclasm made Constantine V very unpopular, didn't it? The people were very keen on their icons and hated this idiot emperor who was taking them away, didn't they? Well, no, surprisingly they didn't, and there was one major reason for this. Despite being quite a sickly man and not a natural soldier, he was full of courage, a brilliant military planner and a fantastic leader of men. The soldiers absolutely loved him, and the people of the empire were not far behind. During the reign of Constantine Capronimus, there were threats and invasions from all sides. The Arabs had been weakened by a civil war, but were always a worry. Constantine decided to go on the offensive, rather than wait for them to attack his empire. In 746 he invaded northern Syria, and destroyed an Arab fleet sent from Alexandria. The Arabs still had no answer to Greek fire. In 750, the Abbasids of Baghdad overran the Arab lands of Syria and destroyed the Omayyad dynasty. The new leaders were based in Baghdad and were more keen on expanding the eastern part of their territory and so stopped attacking the empire. This left Constantine free to look at his western border. He later managed to retake Cyprus. In the west, the Bulgars had become more and more threatening over the previous few years and in 756 they invaded. Constantine rode out at the head of his army and scored a huge victory, 
watching the Bulgars scatter to the hills. But they came back the next year, and they were beaten again. But they came back the next year, and they were beaten again. But they came back... Oh, this is getting a bit boring now. Constantine V led nine campaigns against the Bulgars, winning every one. The greatest victory was on the 30th of June, 763. In a battle which lasted from dawn to dusk, the army of King Telets was utterly destroyed. Constantine V celebrated a triumph, and the Bulgars were quiet for a good few years. There were two more campaigns in 773 and 775. During the last of these, Constantine's legs began to swell up as he marched in the terrible heat. Soon he could no longer walk, and he was taken to a port and put on a boat back to Constantinople. He didn't live to complete the journey. On the 4th of September 775, Constantine V died aged 57. He'd reigned for 34 years. He was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles and was succeeded without any complaints by his son. Before we leave Constantine, name of Dung, the great iconoclast, there are two more things to say about him. Constantine was very keen to ensure that his dynasty carried on and he had a son who was to succeed him. He was keen to ensure that his son, Leo, had a suitable wife. He chose a startlingly beautiful girl from Greece. Why we chose her, we're not. Why he chose her, we're not sure. Apart from being startlingly beautiful, she didn't have a lot going for her. She wasn't from an important family, and she was an iconodule, a supporter of icons. Whatever the reasons for the choice, the future Leo IV was married to this girl who we will come to know as Irene of Athens. Constantine V was also responsible for the final loss of the city of Rome. Most of Italy was coming under heavy pressure from the Lombards and Constantine's iconoclasm was not making him very popular with the people in the Exarchate of Ravenna. In 751, Ravenna was eventually taken and the Lombards were ready to march on Rome. The Pope, no fan of Constantine's name of dung and his iconoclastic silliness, felt unprotected and lost. He didn't want to appeal to the Emperor, who was supposed to be the leader of the Christian peoples, so instead he looked northwest to the powerful kingdom of the Franks. In 754, he set off for France and met with the leader of the Franks, a man with the wonderful name of Pepin the Short. They came to a momentous agreement. The Pope gave the title of Patrician to Pepin, something which he wasn't really allowed to do. Only the Emperor could give that title to anyone. In return, Pepin promised to retake all of the lands the Lombards had taken from the Empire. He didn't agree to give it back to the Empire, though. Nope, he said he'd give the land to the Pope. Again, this wasn't really allowed, since it was theoretically imperial territory. Pepin was as good as his word, and the old exarchate, including the cities of Ravenna, Rome and Perugia, were given to the Pope and became known as the Papal States. The Vatican City, surrounded by the city of Rome, is what remains of the Papal States today. The Pope crowned Pepin King of the Franks, a title which he also gave to two of Pepin's sons. One of them was soon to become the most powerful king the Franks ever had. This man became known as Charles the Great, or Charlemagne. It's difficult to know what to make of Constantine V. He upset a lot of people with his hatred of icons. He had a lot of monks tortured and he lost Rome forever. He was, though, very popular with his people, loved by his army and brilliant in battle. Less than 50 years after his death, the empire was in such a bad way that a mob burst into the Church of the Holy Apostles during a service and made straight for the marble tomb of Constantine Capronimus. They smashed it open, fell on their knees and begged the old iconoclast to come back and save them.
but that is for later. Next time, we're going to take one of our little breaks from the story of the Empire and see what's been happening in Western Europe since the Western Empire fell. So, until then, have a great few weeks and I'll speak to you next time. I say a few weeks because I'm going off on my summer family holiday at the end of the month. Before that time, I'll release a quick update just letting you know when the next episode will be, but do be assured there'll definitely be an episode out before the middle of August.